0: The book of Ruth, chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons, the, man, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took two Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years And both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. My God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word and pray that it would bear great fruit in our lives. God, we pray that as we turn to your word, you would comfort us uh, with the truth that you are able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Popular saying is, don't cry over spilt milk. And that saying certainly sounds good, Except when we're faced with actual problems and actual trials and actual suffering. Because a phrase like, don't cry over spilt milk, doesn't actually help us to deal with our suffering. It just tells us to not be controlled by it. The Bible, friends, offers a much better, more hopeful news because it doesn't just tell you to stop crying and get your act together and it's not that big of a deal. On the contrary, the Bible recognizes and acknowledges how real and painful suffering in this life can be and yet still offers hope. The Bible acknowledges the reality and the despair of trials and suffering in this life and still holds out hope. Hope that is rooted in the power of our God, the Redeemer. God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. And that's what we'll see as we look at the book of Ruth together over the next few weeks. The book of Ruth tells an incredible story about a woman named Naomi and her family Line and, and the various trials that they faced. But that story illustrates a universal reality that God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. And not just for this family, and not even just for the people of Israel, but for all of the earth. Through this family and their trials and suffering, God is going to bring about deliverance for the whole planet It's astounding, friends. You do not want to miss a chapter of this book. Because our God has better news for you than don't cry over spilt milk. He says, yes, your pain is real, and I am alive to redeem it. And we know that our God is powerful to redeem and willing and good and kind to redeem. And he showed that willingness and he showed that power In his son, who never sinned and yet was crucified for our sins. And who rose victoriously from the grave. Friends, if even through the cross, the worst suffering imaginable, our God could bring hope to all the world through the resurrection, how could we ever look at any trial we might face in this life and think that we find ourselves hopeless? Our God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations, and we see that in the book of Ruth. If I were to break Ruth chapter 1 into three scenes, I would give them titles, and the first scene I would title, Things Go From Bad to Worse. Most stories start out very happy, they start out really encouraging, and then something bad happens that that throws a wrench into everything, and everyone's happiness is stolen, and then there's a problem, and the story is revolving around solving that problem. Not so with the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth doesn't start with a happy beginning. The book of Ruth starts with a lot of tragedy, and it just somehow gets worse. So the the book starts in the days when the judges ruled. There was famine in the land. So the days of the judges were a time in the history of God's people, the nation of Israel, after they were led into the land by Moses and Joshua, they were left without any singular national leader. And instead of kings and prophets, they were left with judges. And the judges were not national leaders who were guiding the whole nation to live for God's glory, and to, to serve and to obey God's law, the judges were local military leaders who would rise up in a period of suffering and trial and deliver God's people from their enemies. And so Israel had no moral compass at this time. And so the book of Judges, there's a whole book of the Bible summarizing this era of Israel's history, and the book of Judges describes this era two times in, in, by, by saying this, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the people of Israel were making themselves the deciders of right or wrong instead of following the example of a godly king or submitting to the goodness of God's law. And so as a result, there was famine in the land. Frequently throughout the law, throughout the writings of Moses, God warned his people that famine would come if they rebelled against him. And here, they're faced with famine. Every Israelite reading the book of Ruth would know the warnings, like from Deuteronomy 28, that famine would come as a result of their sin. And what does our hero do? This man, Elimelech, he flees. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Why are we so quick to try to solve our own problems? Instead of running to God and asking for his help. Why is so often our response to sin to run and hide? Instead of to come to God in repentance. Because the Bible says that repentance is God's kindness to us. Confess your sins and find life. Don't run from him. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites. That was their clan. From Bethlehem, that was their city. In Judah, that was the tribe, a region that they lived in. The name Elimelech means God is King. And he came from the land of Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem. That's interesting. Can you think of any other kings born in the city of Bethlehem? Stay tuned. If you don't know the answer to that, stay tuned. We'll meet some of them in the book of Ruth. It's a good book, y'all. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, Moab is really interesting because Moab, throughout the Old Testament up to this point, there's been absolutely nothing positive about the people of Moab. They are a hot Mess. They are a dumpster fire. Think of all the, the, the um, tragedy and, and, and downcastness that we paint towards countries like North Korea and their leaders. Moab would have been ten times worse in the mind of an Israelite. The nation of Moab was brought into existence by Abraham's nephew, Lot, because one day he got drunk and his daughters came in and seduced him, and their descendants were the nation of Moab. That's what Israelites thought of. You read that story in Genesis 19. That's in the Bible. And so that's what an Israelite would have thought of when they heard Moab. They would have thought Abraham's nephew getting drunk and being seduced by his daughter. The people of Moab were disgusting in the Israelites' eyes. Or in Numbers 22 through 24, the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, he enlists the help of a witch doctor to try to curse the people of Israel. And that doesn't go too well for him. But the people of Moab, they're foolish. Or in Judges chapter 3, a lot closer to the time of Ruth, which takes place during the time of the judges, while the judges were judging. And in Judges chapter 3, a mighty and nasty king of Moab, a guy named Eglon, was taking over Israel and oppressing Israel's people, and he's literally described as just this physically disgusting human being. There's very graphic descriptions in Judges chapter 3 about how ugly this guy was, because that's what the Israelites thought of Moab. And so that context shows us the extent of the hopelessness of the situation at home. That an Israelite from Bethlehem of Judah would be willing to go there, That's nasty. We don't go there. And yet, things got even worse. Things go from bad to worse. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, the two sons, took Moabite wives. Israelites are not supposed to do that. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Ten years, keep that in mind. Verse five, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the so that the woman Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi has lost everything in one decade. Naomi has lost everything in just five verses. She's left without her sons, without her husband, and without any grandchildren. And in this culture, childlessness was, a, it was an emergency. It was a tragedy. Why? Well, think about the preservation of Naomi's own life. As we'll see throughout the book of Ruth, a woman couldn't just find any job in the nation of Israel or in the land of Moab in this time. It would be very hard for a woman to find a righteous task that she could provide for herself with. That's going to come to play in this book, in the book of Ruth. So, not having any descendants, not having any children, risked the preservation of Naomi's own life. But also, and maybe even more pressing for Naomi, was the preservation of Elimelech's life, her husband, her husband who had already died. But without any sons to preserve his name and his family line and his legacy, he would be long forgotten. That's also going to come in big in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, in your Bible, starts out as a disaster that gets even worse. So far in the book of Ruth, things have gone from bad to worse. It's been an encouraging Sunday in church. Amen? But here's the thing. I mean, that's funny to us because we expect when we come to church that we should, like, paste a fake smile on and pretend like everything is okay when it's not. Because I know you, and you've you've been suffering this week. You've faced trials this week. You've been discouraged this week. You've had conflicts at work and in your neighborhood and in your home. And that's painful. And friends, oh, how I long for this to be a community where we can acknowledge that pain and not act like we have to hide it. Friends, the Bible does not ignore our suffering. The Bible does not deny the existence of our suffering, so why is that our reflex when we come to church? To pretend like everything's okay. Friends, this is a place where it's okay to not be okay. If your week is horrible and someone asks you, how was your week? Don't tell them it was fine. Tell them it was hard and tell them why. And that means don't ask that question if you're not ready for the mess to come into your life. And friends, if we pretend that suffering like this isn't real, we're going to miss out on some of the most profound things that God is going to do in our lives. Because God works through our suffering to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. That's what he does. So friends, in your moments of suffering, share your burdens. With God, of course, the one who's able to redeem and bring hope but also with your brothers and sisters here in our church. We are a family, friends, and we need to bear one another's burdens. Are you willing to give the time and the headspace and the emotional energy to bear someone else's burdens? Are you willing to to share the vulnerability of sharing your burdens with someone else? I hope you would be. Because God is working in your moments of suffering through this family, our church. And coincidentally, family is also what God uses to turn Naomi's situation around. Scene 2, a tale of two daughters. Verse 6, then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." The Lord God had shown kindness to his people Israel. The famine had been relieved. And now Naomi prays that God would show kindness to Ruth and Orpah. And it's significant here that you'll notice a couple times throughout this passage that we just read, you'll see the name of the Lord in all capital letters in your Bibles. What does that mean? That signifies God's covenant name, the name by which he revealed himself to his people specifically. It was a close name. It was a relational name. It wasn't a name that any average Joe in Moab could use. It was a name that God's people could use for him. And it was a name that was so holy, the Israelites didn't even say it. And so that's significant because it reminds us and points us to the fact that God has not forgotten his people. God has not forgotten his people. He hasn't forgotten his people on a macro level. He's relieved of their famine. And he's not forgotten his people on a micro level. He sees Naomi. And he wants to help her. He's showing kindness to her. Friends, God has not forgotten you. Sometimes in a season of suffering or a trial, we are so tempted to think, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Have you abandoned me? And he never has if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, God has never abandoned you. God has never abandoned you. Sometimes when, when I'm in a different part of the city, I'll park my car somewhere and I'll completely forget where it is. And I'll walk around for a while and be like, huh, I can't find my car. And I have never once said, huh, I guess I'll just Metro home, get a new car. Because that car was costly to me. I'm not just going to leave it somewhere in the city. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to drive it home, no matter how long it takes. Because it was costly to me. And friends, you were costly to God. He purchased you with his son's own blood. Of course he's not going to forget you. Of course he's not going to abandon you. You were costly to him, friends. He will not forget his people. But notice here the fact. It's significant that Naomi uses the covenant name of God when she's talking to these two Moabites. And she's praying that the Lord, this Lord, the covenant Lord, the Lord who protects his people, would protect these Moabites. Maybe without even realizing it, Naomi is testifying to the fact that our God is not a tribal deity. The Moabites had a God. His name was Chemosh. He wasn't real. He still isn't. And he was the God of Moab. The Moabites worshipped him. He was a tribal deity. And the God of Israel was radically different. He is the God of all nations, and he always has been and he always will be. That's why we send missionaries And that's why each and every one of us needs to care about the nations, because God cares about the nations. Let's keep reading in verse 9. Naomi, then Naomi kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? Notice here where Naomi is looking for help and hope. Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? So she's saying, let's just assume that I got home, found a husband tonight. We got married. We had kids. You're going to have to wait a little while before he's able to provide for you. Are you guys really just going to sit around these two ladies in their prime? Naomi's saying, no, guys, don't wait for that. That's foolish. And it's probably not going to happen anyway. It's like betting on a horse that's not even in the race. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's Naomi's interpretation of her suffering. But God's hand is working against her. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. So Orpah here, notice, Orpah is not just abandoning Naomi. She's abandoning Naomi's God, the true God, the God of Israel. She's not just going back to her people. She's going back to her gods. But what does Ruth do? And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Orpah didn't just abandon Naomi, Orpah abandoned God. And Ruth is not just clinging to Naomi, she's casting her lot in with Naomi's God, the true God, the God of Israel. And Ruth's dialogue here is filled with covenant language. She's saying that she's going, she's lodging. She's staying with my people, with Naomi's people. And ultimately, she's saying that Naomi's God would become her God. This is Ruth. Not just uh, deciding, like, oh, time in Israel, that might be pretty cool. I'll I'll go with Naomi, the old bag. No. No. This is Ruth looking at the God of Israel and determining that he is worthy of her worship. That the God of Israel is the trustworthy savior. And this is a long-term thing for her. He says, where you Ruth says, where you die, I will die. Where you die, I will die. This is a long-term commitment for Ruth. And she even makes this sound like a covenant. Where she says, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She's saying, like, cross my heart and hope to die. She's saying, whatever it takes, if anything but death separates us, pray that the Lord would kill me right away. Ruth finds hope for the future. Not by looking at Naomi, but by looking to her God. But by looking to her god naomi on the other hand doubts about the future because she's looking for redemption she's looking for turnaround she's looking for deliverance from another source from progeny she says my case is hopeless because i'm not going to have a husband and we're not going to have kids She's looking for turnaround. She's looking for hope in the most hopeless of situations from progeny and a husband rather than her God. And that's why in verse 13, she interprets her situation as saying, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And Naomi correctly believes that God is in control of all things. She wrongly believes that God is against her. That'll come up again. But notice what happens here. If you take Naomi out of the story for a moment, what you see is incredible tragedy. A a, a man and his two sons dying, leaving three widows behind with no children to take care of them. And then a Moabite, a pagan, turning to the true God of Israel. That's something else, isn't it? That God works in this horrible situation, this hopeless situation, and he brings hope. He brings a pagan to know him as as her redeemer. And friends, throughout Scripture, this is a frequent pattern, that suffering leads to glory. Suffering leads to glory. Naomi is suffering, and God uses that to bring about the glory of the nations worshiping. And this is typical throughout Scripture. Lasting faith and lasting glory to God typically come at the suffering of God's people. The supreme example to that is the Son of God who himself suffered to bring that glory of the nations worshiping. Look at John chapter 12. Follow along on the screen. This is a story about Jesus, and it illustrates this point that suffering leads to glory. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some Greeks, non-Israelites. They didn't know the God of Israel. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, that's great, isn't it? The nations coming to worship Jesus? So what happens next? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. They're like, hey, Jesus, some Greeks are here. They want to worship you. figure that's cool. You want us to bring them in? And Jesus, instead of saying, like, yeah, sure, bring them in. That'd be great. Jesus says, it's very cryptic, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What Jesus is saying here is that for a grain of wheat to bear any fruit, that seed has to go into the ground. It has to be buried. What kind of person gets buried? A dead person. Uh, That seed has to be buried. It has to crack open and die. And then it bears great fruit. These Greeks want to come to Jesus. They can't do it unless if Jesus goes on the path set before him and dies on the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus' suffering paid for our sins. Suffering leads to glory. If the nations want to worship, Jesus has to die. And this isn't just in Christ's suffering that this happens, but our suffering too. Jesus keeps talking. In John chapter 12, the next two verses, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus calling his disciples, in light of this pattern that suffering leads to glory, Jesus calls his disciples to come to him in faith and to lay down their lives, to follow Jesus. And the path that Jesus treads is the path that leads to the cross. And that's what Jesus is calling you to today, friends. He's calling you to lose your life. Now, you probably will not be crucified this week. And so Jesus, I don't think, is necessarily calling you to, to run and be martyred today, but he is calling you to lay down your life, to lay down your plans, to lay down your preferences for his glory. Your sacrifice, your suffering in that way, is God's plan to reach the nation that they might stop worshiping gods like Chemosh of Moab and turn to worship the true God of Israel. So friends, Christians, embrace suffering as God's plan for your life. Now don't hear me wrong. I'm not not advocating for masochism, that you should go out and, and experience as much pain as possible because it's for Jesus. No, I'm saying that you should do the simple work of denying yourself every day to serve God. That's what Jesus is calling you to. And that kind of simple suffering, not loving your own life, that kind of simple suffering will bring profound glory to God. It's that embrace of suffering that will enable you to ask a friend, a non-Christian friend, to read the Bible with. It's that kind of embrace of suffering that would enable you to say, I'm willing to leave behind the comforts of my life to move overseas and to serve. We want to embrace suffering as God's plan for our lives. And that's hard to do because we're so particular about everything. My wife and I literally had an argument this week about toothpaste and about if you're supposed to squeeze it from the middle or the end. There's a right and wrong answer here. But so we were arguing about our preferences. We're so, as a people, friends, we are so unwilling to suffer and this is God's plan for your life. Jesus is saying whoever loves his life loses it. If you're so obsessed with your own preferences that you're not willing to to, to bend the knee on something like toothpaste, then you hate your life and you're going to die. But if you deny yourself, then you keep your life forever. So embrace suffering as God's plan for your life. Let's keep going with Ruth's story. Scene three, is God ruthless? Is God ruthless? That's funny because her name is Ruth. Come on, guys. I texted that to my wife and said, stop me before it's too late. And she said, stop. And I said, it's too late. (laughs) It's in there. (laughs) Jokes are a lot funnier when you explain them. Is God ruthless? Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? What's going on here? The women They see Naomi, they immediately start gossiping. And they immediately say, like, that's Naomi? Like, what on earth has happened in the last 10 years that she's been in Moab? She looks like a mess. Is this Naomi? And Naomi says, no, not really. This is not the Naomi that you've known. The name Naomi means pleasant. And Naomi is here saying, my life has been anything but pleasant. Verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. This is like saying, Don't call me honey. Call me cyanide. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Again, you see here, Naomi rightly believes that God is in control of all things. She wrongly believes that God is against her. We have no right to be bitter against a God who has been so kind to us. We have to trust that he is wise and in control. And the last verse of this chapter gives us a profound reason to hope. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. So that summary, that's what happened so far. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The barley harvest. They left Israel in a time of famine. They're coming back in a time of harvest. There's about to be food in the land of Israel. There's about to be food before God's people to provide for them. And we're going to see in the rest of the book of Ruth, God's going to use this barley harvest to redeem Naomi and to redeem Ruth, to save them, to turn their situation around, to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. And he's not just going to use this barley harvest to make things a little better for Ruth. He's going to use this barley harvest to bring about deliverance and redemption for the whole planet. But in order to understand that redemption that God brings, we have to understand where everything went wrong. Where did all this suffering even come from? If God really is good, why is there suffering in this world? The Bible begins with a stunning story of God creating the first people, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They followed Satan rather than God. They believed that they could become like God, and so they didn't submit to him. They didn't follow him. And what happened as a result? In Genesis chapter 3, a serpent slides into the garden paradise where Adam and Eve lived. And he lied to them, and he convinced them that sin was better than God. And God, because he's a just God, because he's a holy God, because he's a fair God, he can't ignore sin. He has to punish it. And so he punishes them, and that's where all suffering comes from. The curse that we brought about in the world by our own sin. He curses the man. In Genesis chapter 3, God curses the man, Adam. And he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God curses the man Adam, and as a result, the, the ground wouldn't always bring forth fruit. And that's why there was a famine in Ruth chapter 1. Man rebelled against God, and as a result, death. Entered the picture. Mankind was made to live forever. They sinned against God. They were removed from the garden paradise. And now death came into the picture. And now there's death. And that's why Elimelech and Malon and Kilion died. Because of sin. Because of Genesis 3. Because of the curse on the man. God doesn't just curse the man though. He curses the woman. Genesis 3.16. God says to the woman who ate the fruit. The forbidden fruit. I will surely... Multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Why do you think Ruth didn't have children for ten years? It's because there's a curse on the womb. All of our suffering comes from that curse. It's a direct result of the sin of Adam. Adam. But God doesn't leave his people there. Even here, as he's telling the first people that they've ruined the garden paradise forever, and that there will be no more paradise until he finishes his plan of redemption, even there, God brings hope into the most hopeless of situations. Because he doesn't just curse the man, and he doesn't just curse the woman. He also curses the serpent that set it all off in Genesis 3 3. 15, I will put enmity, God says to the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God has a plan to end all of the suffering brought about by the curse by raising up a son of the woman who will do battle with Satan. And Satan, the serpent, will bruise that son's head. It's going to look like he's lost. Or he's going to bruise that son's heel. But that son will bruise his head. The serpent is going to rise up and bite the son of Eve on the heel. And it's going to be painful. And it's going to look like the story is over and the battle is lost and evil has won. And then the son of Eve. Is going to lift his foot and stomp the snake into the ground forever. This is God's plan to end all suffering. To bring about a Savior from the line of Eve. And we believe that Savior's come and his name is Jesus. He is the seed of the woman. Come to crush Satan. And wouldn't you know who his great-great-great-grandmother is? Her name was Ruth. Matthew 1 shares... Jesus' family tree, where you see Ruth's name listed. A Moabite in the line of the Savior. Astounding. God brings hope into the most hopeless of situations. Because Jesus wasn't just a good good soldier who served well. He never sinned, and he died the death we deserve to die. Satan bruised his heel. And he was being punished in that moment for our sins, because he didn't have any. But three days later, Jesus rose victoriously from the dead, crushing Satan forever. So that if we look to him in faith, friends, we can be saved. We can find life in Jesus' name. So if you're not a Christian today, then look to the suffering Savior to find forgiveness for your sins and meaning for all of your suffering. None of this will make sense until you make your story a part of his story, until you trust in the seed of the woman, the grandson of Ruth, to save you from your sins. And Christians, we look forward to the day when Jesus will make all things new and eliminate all suffering. And in the meantime, we walk through this life as suffering people. And we don't always know what God is doing in our suffering, but we know that he is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. John Piper, who's an author and theologian, he says, in any given moment, God might be doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. And in any moment of suffering, you might be aware of three things that God might be doing in your life. Let me tell you about three of them in closing. In your suffering, God is going to grow you in godliness. James chapter 1 says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, "'when you meet trials of various kinds, "'for you know that the testing of your faith "'produces steadfastness.'" God is going to grow you through your suffering. He's going to wean you from the world like a purifying flame. He's going to equip you to help others who are suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God brings you to a season of trial so that you are able to comfort others in a season of trial. And also, he's going to do that to help you depend on him, to strengthen your faith. Keep reading in 2 Corinthians 1, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with, we, with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. I'm going to invite the music team up. Friends, come to Christ who suffered to end all suffering. And if you in your suffering, if you're tempted to believe, like Naomi, that God is against you, recognize that that's a lie proven at the cross of Christ. Christ died for you, for your sins. He didn't die for a future version of you that might be cleaned up enough to be worth dying for. He died for you at your worst, for your worst. Of course he was aware of it. That's what put him there. So don't believe the lie that God is against you. Run towards Christ who suffered to end all suffering. Suffering was not the end of Christ's story, and it won't be the end of yours, because our God is able to bring hope into the most hopeless of situations. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for every verse and paragraph. We thank you for the book of Ruth. We pray that it would bear great fruit in our lives as we study it over the next few weeks. God, I pray that anyone suffering here today would find hope and comfort in your Son and in his blood, and resurrection. It's for his name we pray.